0: accuse me not of presumption if leaving this world and preparing myself for a better i remind you that you will one day to give account of your charge in like manner as those who preceded you in it and that my blood and the misery of my country will be remembered your sister and
1: cousin wrongfully a prisoner that was the final letter of mary queen of scots to her cousin queen elizabeth I. and that's what she said
0: So today we're talking about the rivalry of two of the most famous royals in history, Queen Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots, two women vying for the throne in one realm. Polly, you and I have come across these two figures quite a bit in our studies in church history, but have you ever wondered about them beyond their contribution to Reformation history?
1: Yeah, well, I think the fact that they're these queens in a time where traditionally kings ruled has always kind of been interesting to me. I think I've also heard a conspiracy theory about how Queen Elizabeth was a man. And so just, I thought that was kind of interesting and funny as well. Maybe I'll bring that up later. Yeah. um, so Never too, never too early for a conspiracy theory. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I feel like they're two figures in which there is just so much written about and so much, speculated about because Mm. the fact that they were women and the fact that there was this kind of rivalry so that's kind of always interested me what about you
0: um well for those who know me they know (laughs) that I'm passionate about a few things in life and (laughs) one of them is Queen Elizabeth I Mm. so I I think the first time I ever got interested in history generally um but particularly kind of History of the Church and things like that was uh, the first time I was ever introduced to Tudor history. Yeah. Um, And, you know, out of that has, you know, come my particular love for Elizabeth and another figure called Lady Jane Grey. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I'm not entirely sure, actually, now that I think about it, what, what in particular that I love about them. But I think... I think if I was to take a stab at it, I think it's it's that they, uh, you know, Elizabeth and Lady Jane Grey, I think, um, really uh, show such interesting pictures of being a woman at the time mm, mm. and also being a woman leader mm, at the time.
1: Mm.
0: So, um, you know, that coinciding with the fact that I think um, Kate Burnchett's portrayal of Elizabeth in the movie Elizabeth is yeah. just so, so good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm still, I'm still shook <laughs> that she did not win the Oscar for that portrayal, <laughs> um, but you know I'll slowly get over it yeah. as time goes on. Um, but yeah, so I've I've always been interested in her, and you know kind of less so with Mary Queen of mm. Scots, which has been a really interesting, I guess, reflection on my own interests and maybe even some historical bias, mm. which I think will kind of it will be a, a continuing theme as we as we go through this episode. Um, but yeah, certainly one of my. Big passions and I'm very excited that we get to talk about these two women today. So I think it's really important that we get a little bit of background information both to uh, the characters of Elizabeth and Mary and also just generally to the time. So Elizabeth is, or was, (laughs) I wish she was still alive. She was the second daughter of Henry VIII and the only daughter of his second wife Anne Boleyn. So Henry secretly married Anne in 1533 after uh, unsuccessfully petitioning Pope Clement uh, the Seventh for an annulment from his first mm. wife, who mm. was Catherine of Aragon, uh, commonly called the Spanish Queen. So Anne uh, was already pregnant with Elizabeth uh, when they secretly married. Um, and uh, it's so interesting because um, when she was born, she was – a great deal of disappointment to everyone because everybody was certain that she would be a boy. So up until this point, um, Henry had been able to produce a male heir. Mm -hmm. So his only surviving legitimate child was a girl, Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Tudor, so who's commonly called uh, Bloody Mary. Um, And everyone thought that if he changes wives, Maybe it'll be like, you know, it'll be good and she'll have a boy um, because there was this idea, particularly um, the, the idea that the king had, which is that God had cursed him yeah. um, or he was experiencing some sort of curse for uh, marrying his brother's wife That's because right. Catherine of Aragon was actually married to, uh, to Henry's older brother. Yeah. Yeah, so she was a cause of great disappointment when she came along. Um, and interestingly, England's ambassador to the Holy Roman Empire records the birth of Elizabeth like this. The king's mistress was delivered of a girl to the great disappointment and sorrow of the king and of the lady herself, and to the great shame and confusion of physicians, astrologers, wizards and witches, all of whom affirmed that it would be a
1: boy. But you have to wonder that they probably just affirmed that it would be a because otherwise, they may have been killed for oh, 100%. suggesting that it was a girl. Yeah. I feel like that's a bit of a.
0: <laughs> Let's tell the monarch exactly what the monarch wants to know. Um, and yeah, so they have all of these kind of uh, seers and astrologers and things like that who who are con- who are who are saying it's going to be a boy, and then out pops this girl, and everyone is upset. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it was um it was it was really really bad, and it kind of went south very quickly. So. Um, that is, uh, the marriage between Henry and Anne. So, uh, l- sometime later, Anne was, uh, beheaded for adultery and incest, like some things that mm. probably weren't proven, mm. like couldn't really be proven, but it was, it was kind of the charges against her. Um, and because of that, uh, Elizabeth was declared illegitimate. Yeah. Um, alongside her elder sister, Mary Tudor. So both of their mums had been done away with, um... And, and now uh, Henry is without an heir um, and it doesn't take him any time at all. So not even two weeks after Anne is beheaded, Henry marries Jane Seymour, um, whom I think historians tend to say was his favourite wife. Yeah. Um, and she's the only one who provides him with a legitimate male heir. Mm-hmm. Um, a son, Edward, um, who would later become king um, after his father died. So to cut a long story short, after the death of Edward from TV, he died quite a young man. Mm. Um, and then after the short and bloody reign of Mary, Elizabeth becomes Queen of England, Ireland, and France at her coronation in 1558.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that Henry's plan was to always have a male heir, mm. and then finally he has one who is a king for such a short amount of time. Mm. And what he was... Trying to go against this whole time of a female heir ends up happening Mm. with Mary and then Elizabeth. Crazy.
0: Yeah. And I think it's um, important to remember, like, so for us, we kind of go, like, we, we've lived our whole lives under the reign of...
1: A queen. A queen. Yeah. You
0: can check out our first podcast episode. Yeah. Um, who has reigned with such stability and grace and dignity and everybody loves her. Um... But, for, like, for them at this time, a queen, they'd never been a queen no, of England. No, no. So, so Mary, Mary Tudor is commonly held up to be the first, um, you know, female sovereign of England. Mm. Um, and and so it wasn't just, like, a bit controversial because it didn't happen very much. It had it never happened. happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a good thing to keep in mind in terms of you, kind of the, the dynamics of, of what's involved when a woman is on the throne.
1: Yeah. Uh, so... On to looking at Mary, we'll refer to Mary and Elizabeth as cousins throughout this episode because that's how they conceived of each other, but Mary was actually the great niece of Henry VIII. She was born in Scotland, the daughter of James V, and the French Mary of Guise in 1542. Only six days after her birth, her father died, making her Queen of Scotland. Uh, She ruled, obviously, through regents until she was an adult. Now, this age, Henry VIII, her great-uncle, is still on the throne in England, and, sensing an opportunity, proposes a match to be made between baby Edward and baby Mary. The Treaty of Greenwich is signed, which established an alliance between England and Scotland, pending the marriage of Edward and Mary and the production of an heir. This eventually goes pear-shaped, however, and another king, Henry II of France, proposes that Mary instead marry his son Francis, the Dauphin of France. This is agreed to and Mary goes over to France, marrying the Dauphin when she was 16 years old. They become king and queen shortly after, when King Henry died in a justing accident. So back in Scotland, however, Protestantism was growing and there was increasing tension. Mary's mum, Mary of Guise, is struggling to keep a hold of everything and is basically only keeping it under control by the French troops that her daughter is sending over. Her mother later dies and there's a big question about what is going to happen to Scotland.
0: We are both in one aisle, both of one language, both the nearest kinswoman that each other have and both queens. That was Mary, Queen of Scots to
1: Elizabeth. So, Andy, if Mary is Scottish mm-hmm. and Elizabeth is English, then why are they vying for the same throne? Can you explain that for us? Yeah, so both Mary
0: and Elizabeth claimed they were the rightful heirs to the English throne. Um. As we've established before, they're both related. So Mary's grandmother, Margaret Tudor, was Elizabeth's aunt. However, um, Henry VIII's succession, which he changed a number of times, um, deliberately excluded the Stuarts, who you know were up in Scotland, from ascending to the throne. And so um, after Edward, it passed to his half-sister Mary and then eventually to his other half-sister Elizabeth. And I think the important thing in terms of context to remember is that England is still a very young Protestant country. Mm. Um, and so uh, you might not even be able to call it a Protestant country yet because mm. the Edwardian um, reforms had been completely rescinded by Mary. So yeah. she took the throne and she's like, we've got to get England being back to a Catholic country again. Um, and she was in the process of guiding England back, um, literally guiding them through penance mm-hmm. um to Rome and so she was she was waiting to reinstate um England back to its rightful place in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and there are still lots of Catholics in the realm um who believed that uh the Catholic Mary, that is um you know both her sister Mary and then later Mary Queen of Scots had a greater claim to the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because Elizabeth was still seen by many to be a bastard um, mm-hmm. and and a you know, a bastard child of an adulterous Protestant mother. Um, and, you know, she herself is a Protestant as well. And so she's greatly delegitimized Mm. by a lot of the people. Um, and so the fight continued pretty much right up until the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, um, over who was the rightful queen. Mm. Um, and, and so there's kind of like pros and cons for both. And so they're kind of both in the race, yeah. which is why, um, Which is why they both saw each other as, as legitimate and the other as not legitimate. Yeah. Um, but there are a number of, uh, you know, stark differences between the two queens. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm interested, like, how have you heard them or seen them portrayed, um, in history and in pop culture?
1: Yeah, well, I think people really like to play off the appearance uh, Mm. of things. Yeah. Um, yeah seeing Mary as this, like, really beautiful and um, feminine kind of queen, whereas Elizabeth kind of this masculine Mm. queen, which I think is where the conspiracy that she was a man comes into play. Um, So I think on the surface level, people really like to make a a stark difference between how they looked. Yeah. What about you?
0: Um, Yeah, so 100% on the appearance thing, like, even if you compare – their portraits Mm, it's mm. it's really um it's very interesting how they're portrayed Mm. um and you know i think the portraits tend the portraits tend to make everyone look better than they were yeah um because it was like a different time there was no such thing as preventative dental care you know what i mean everyone's got a closed mouth um but yeah so i think you know uh, because um Elizabeth really wanted to rule in the same vein as her father. All of her portraits look very much like him, very Mm. regal, very ostentatious, um, you know, with that kind of uh, royal red, um, rich fabrics kind of thing, whereas Mary is always uh, portrayed very simply um, in a kind of Roman Catholic Stoic sense. Mm. Black dresses often... um, very much like take me seriously yeah. like well actually both of them are kind of like take me seriously but in very different ways yeah. um so that's that's interesting and I mean if you really want to just do a google search and you can see kind of what we're talking about yeah. um when it comes to their paintings um but it's interesting because um it seems like in recent times there's been a shift uh to to be critical of this kind of uh, Gloriana persona of yeah, Elizabeth yeah. Um, and actually kind of trying to give more of a realistic portrayal about what she was actually like. Yeah. So the Queens were very different in appearance, personality, gifting, religion, and attitude. Um, you, you really actually can't get to like more, more different, different people. Yeah. Um, so Elizabeth was Protestant um, and Mary a Catholic. And as you mentioned before, um, and as you can see in the pictures, Uh, Mary was more beautiful of the two. So she was tall, she was pale, she had these beautiful grey eyes and very delicate features. Um, And Elizabeth, even though she was pale like her cousin, she had more masculine features, um, very strong features. And both of them had, so as was very common for the time, both Mm. had suffered from smallpox. Uh, But Mary didn't actually get extensive scarring. Mm. Elizabeth, on the other hand, was left... Um, with really bad scarring and interestingly, um, you know, when you look back in some of the pictures and even like when people try and caricature the time, Mm. you get these big frilled collars. Yeah, yeah. So actually it was – they were around but it was was actually Queen Elizabeth who popularised them and made them um, so symbolic of the era because her smallpox scarring was so bad that she wore these um, really, really high and elaborate collars – Um, to try and distract from the the fact that her neck and her face were so disfigured from the smallpox. Um, And so the the other thing was that as time went on, Elizabeth really lost her look. So that's not, like, bad enough. Um, So the paint that she used to cover up her scars and to give her that um, pale appearance, which was so popular at the time, was lead-based. And so she was basically all, like, every day of her life applying lead-based paint to her face. And so all her hair fell out. Um, And so this is also why she wore so many wigs. So Mm. Mm. in a lot of the paintings, you can see that um, she had lots of different and elaborate hairstyles, um, but her hair was falling out, she was pockmarked, um, and, you know, her skin was in a really bad condition. um, So, it, you know, kind of like that whole meme about like, you know, um, after, you know, when you wake up the next morning kind of thing, what does she look like? Like it would have been pretty, pretty bad. Um, and, and yeah, so in terms of appearance, they, they were really quite different. Mm. So, um, as well as kind of having good looks, um, Mary Queen of Scots was a very charming woman. So, um, it's interesting because this is something that's actually recorded for us. Mm. Is that Elizabeth was quite annoyed at the obvious charm of her cousin. Um, however, and this is just so like symbolic of how people, particularly men, want to have a like want to kind of caricature a rivalry between yes. two women. Yes, which is just like well, Elizabeth was just you know jealous that um, Mary was the one who had better looks. Yeah, but I just think that's such a superficial reading. Yeah. Um, It's such a shallow reading of their relationship and ignores so much of the other evidence that we have about the richness and the nuance of their relationship. So um, Elizabeth once remarked to the French ambassador, she said, there is something sublime in the words and bearing of the Queen of Scots that constrains even her enemies to speak well of her. Um, So people spend a lot of time writing about how Elizabeth chose to be a virgin queen and that how she would not jeopardize her rule by marrying or marrying poorly. Um, something that we'll, we'll come to speak about a little bit later. Um, but I think that people forget that she was a human being who mm. probably fell in love at least once. Like there are a couple of um, couple of uh relationships that she had where people had serious speculations. Probably yeah. the most famous relationship was uh, Robert Dudley, mm. um, who was kind of her her long-standing favourite. Um, apparently, people say that she whispered his name when she was on her deathbed.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, so...
0: Um, but she never married, and she, for a very long time, which was really cunning diplomacy, she um, she kind of allowed different nations to entertain the prospect that she might be interested in marrying them yeah, or yeah. And that kept people at bay for a really long time. Like, she played that card over and over again. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, like I said, I think people should forget that she was a human being who probably fell in love. And, um, you know, here is her beautiful cousin who is, um, as well as being physically beautiful, is very charming and Mm -hmm. everyone's drawn to her and even is likable even to her enemies. Um, So, you know, here's her cousin and she, Elizabeth, sees her cousin making the mistakes that she's working so hard not to make. Yeah. Um, and if you think about it, you know, even in a family sense, the mistakes that she saw her mother make, yeah, that she saw her many stepmothers make,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: her sister Mary, who married, you know, Philip of Spain and he yeah. was a total jerk. Um, and so, uh, she's seeing all these people make these mistakes and then she sees her cousin who bats her eyelids to kind of, um, manage her nation and manage her rule and she just sees that's... That's someone making a mistake, and um, I get that it would probably provoke feelings not just of jealousy, but of uh, of bitterness and yeah. um, of shame. And you know, like what a shame that she's doing this. Mm. Um, she's she. I think she was critical of Mary um, squandering her opportunity to rule in a way that is fit for a world run by men.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so. Polly, I'm interested, what do you make of these uh, kind of competing representations of the two queens?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think it's unfortunate that um, what they looked like had such a big... has a big mark on history. Mm. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate because I think if, if this was two men to play this card, um, we probably would be a lot less focused on what they looked like and how that might have played mm-hmm. into things. And potentially, that's you know, overrepresented in um, depictions of both of the queens. And I would love to actually know how much it was in their um, thinking about about what they looked like and how they looked. And, yeah, I'd hope that Elizabeth's and Mary's relationship and their rivalry was based on a lot more than what they looked like, Mm. um, which I suspect it was. Um, I think it's also interesting, I feel like it's a representation of what we see in kind of modern feminism, which is, is it better to shirk the system or to play the game? Yes, 100%. And so I feel like, you know, Mary is um, playing the game and, you know, being super feminine and um, kind of using her womanly wiles uh, to rule, whereas Elizabeth is you know, as you said, wants to be like her father, in her portraits at least, and is ruling in this really masculine way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's just really interesting to see that kind of representation of women um, so long ago when that's something that's consistently discussed now. Yeah, it's
0: so relevant. Like, mm. I remember when, um, oh, man, when the it was the, the last American federal election and... Um, there was this couple of days when Hillary Clinton decided not to wear
1: makeup, mm. and
0: everyone was like, Are you dying? Are yeah. you sick? Are you like, is the campaign trail like too hard for you? Um, and you know, like, certainly her political rivals were trying to play on that card. Yeah. Like, she's sick, she's not capable of, um, she's not physically capable of keeping up with the demands of being president. And she came out, and she was just like, If I I don't want to wear makeup. I don't have to wear makeup. Yeah. And I don't owe you an explanation. Yeah. Um. And I think that's so, like, it's such a consistent thing yeah. that women are scrutinised um, for their physical appearance. And you kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Exactly. And I think particularly, like, if I was to kind of, I don't want to speak too heavily, but I think in Christian circles, mm-hmm. particularly, like, my experience as a woman who tends to wear makeup probably every day Mm -hmm. um there are people who question that and Mm -hmm. they're like do you are you too vain Mm -hmm. um are you too concerned about what you look like and not kind of like on your inner um your inner character and worth and I'm just like I just like it like (laughs) I don't um I don't actually think as hard about it than than you do, and maybe I should think more about it, but um, I think it's just interesting that if I chose to and then the thing happens where if I choose not to wear makeup, I walk around and people are like are you unwell? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, no,
1: I just, like, what do you want from me? Yeah, or Um, or it can be seen as potentially unprofessional or like you're not um, you know, putting enough effort into your work or things like that if you don't wear makeup which is just, yeah, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, and I
0: think, you know, it would have been so hard. Like I said, like, there'd never been a female monarch. Yeah. Um, and it would have been really hard to be a monarch at this point, um, you know, a monarch and a woman at this point in yeah. history. So um, her her sister Mary – this is um, Elizabeth – her sister Mary was the first Queen of England, and so it really wasn't a normal thing yet. And if you're interested in the ire that was generated by this, you can read uh, some of the reformer John Knox's work um, – mm-hmm. <laughs> you can read about him and he's very colourful language about what he thought about having women as rulers in, what's what's the work called? Basically it talks about women as like this plague and that they, they shouldn't ever kind of rule. Yeah. Um, and most of it is written in the time when Mary Tudor is Queen and so like obviously there's a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment that's rolled into um, into that but have you got it?
1: Yeah, it's called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the monstrous regiment of women, Yeah. a polemical work by John Knox, so uh, huge. 1558, yeah, yeah. Um, look, we all love our brother
0: John Knox. Made some <laughs> very good contributions to the Reformation, but he's pretty off when it comes to this. Um, and it's it's just so interesting that if you're if you're too soft, you aren't capable of ruling, which is yeah. kind of his his argument, right? Like yeah. we mentioned, they're not capable of doing this, yeah. Um, and if you're too hard, you're you aren't behaving in a womanly fashion and you're not becoming of a woman. And, and because of that, I reckon every woman in politics or royalty has had to deal with similar things. Yes. And even, even our current queen has remarked, um, you know, she's not exactly someone who is remembered for being particularly warm. No. So, you know, like princess, that was princess Diana. right? Yeah. Um, and our current queen is like, she's, she's made remarks before where she talks about like, if she doesn't smile, she's not, you know, if she doesn't, She, she's is warm and hugged and cried and she's not womanly enough. But if she kind of carries on in the way that she does carry on, she's not, you know, or she's too womanly and then she's not yeah. woman, too womanly. So it's,
1: yeah, it's, it's really hard. So let's talk a little bit about their marriages and their love interests, as you mentioned before. Yeah. So Elizabeth never married and to be honest, this probably is what enabled her to reign for as long as she did with such stability But she entertained the notion of marriage for a long time. And by leaving the door open, she could keep all of her rivals busy trying to figure out, will she or won't she? She knew that if she married the king of Spain or the king of Sweden, that she would probably become queen to a king. She could keep control if she didn't marry. She could avoid what her sister went through. For example, when Philip II grew tired of his limited power and chucked a big hissy fit. The downside was, of course, that she did not have the safety of a husband and obviously did not have the safety of an heir. And so for a long time, Mary worked at becoming Elizabeth's heir. Yeah, so her her first tactic uh,
0: in their rivalry was actually to try and get Elizabeth to name her as her heir. Mm -hmm. And eventually that changed as time... Uh, went on and everyone's like well Elizabeth's actually living a lot longer than we thought and um, and I think that Mary just grew impatient um, and there were a lot of other things going on at the time so um, what's interesting is that Mary is almost the the picture opposite Mm. Um, she married three times and as we've mentioned she was married to the Dauphin of France but she was widowed at a very young age and so she hitchhikes back to Scotland uh, where she marries Henry Stuart, who was, uh, Lord Darnley in England, but he was a Catholic, um, sympathizer. And so he goes up to Scotland and marries Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, so Lord Darnley, as you mentioned, as I mentioned, his last name is Stuart. So she, he was Mary's first cousin. And so also Elizabeth's cousin, um, he and his family were Catholic. And so both hostile to Elizabeth's Protestantism and sympathetic towards Mary's plight, um, Look, in reality, it was a pretty political move. Mm. So Mary and Henry apart could maybe challenge Elizabeth's legitimacy, but together they could mount a more sustained challenge. So now instead of one of her cousins um, being her rival, Elizabeth now had two of her cousins who had joined forces in the Northern Kingdom. So, um, yeah, it was it was definitely a, a good move uh, in theory. Um However, it was not to be because Lord Darnley was also Lord Jerk. So he was <laughs> a drunk, he was jealous, he was arrogant, he demanded to be given the crown matrimonial, um, which is basically like when someone marries a monarch, they're just made, like, equal yeah. with them. So I'm not entirely sure about this, but I think that the current Duke of Edinburgh is the crown matrimonial. But anyway, yeah. we'll have to check. Um, so that would have that made him co-regent with Mary Uh And he joined with the other lords to murder Mary's secretary, John Rizzo, right in front of her. And apparently, historians say that he sustained 56 stab wounds. Solo blow. Uh, Yeah. And uh, if you have seen the current, uh, sorry, the the recent movie, Mary Queen of Scots, there is a very graphic scene where that happens. Um, So he and Mary were only married for a year, in which time, luckily, Mary was able to conceive a son. Um, but he was later murdered in a botched assassination attempt, uh, which Mary, in the very least, probably knew about. So uh, there were rumours aplenty about uh, this assassination attempt, and we have a number of letters that Elizabeth wrote to Mary concerning the rumours, and they're a, just a pot of gold when it comes to trying to understand the relationship between the two. So Elizabeth writes...
1: Madam, my ears have been so astounded and my heart so frightened to hear of the horrible and abominable murder of your husband and my own cousin that I have scarcely spirit to write. Yet I cannot conceal that I grieve more for you than him. I should not do the office of a faithful cousin and friend if I did not urge you to to preserve your honour rather than look through your fingers at revenge on those who have done you that pleasure, as most people say. I counsel you so to take this matter to heart that you may show the world what a noble princess and loyal woman you are. I write this vehemently, not that I doubt, but for affection. So after
0: Mary um, lost her second husband in this assassination attempt, uh, Elizabeth is counselling her not to take revenge on people who probably did it. Mm. Um, But there are also other letters where Elizabeth has written... um, has, you know, basically written her to counsel to be wise in this time. Um, so that is exactly what she does not do. Um, partly, you know, it's it's partly because she has so many men around her, this is Mary, she has so many men around her who are basically shoving her around like a pawn. Mm. And so the extent to which it was her, um, her choice uh, to do what follows is debatable. So she swiftly married her third and final husband, James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell. And Bothwell had convinced more than two dozen lords and bishops to sign uh, the Ainsley Tavern Bond, in which they agreed to support his aim to marry the Queen. So he had he had basically constructed this, mm. and then once the assassination attempt had been successful, he moves in with the support of the other lords and marries Mary. And she was basically forced into marrying him. Yeah, um, And the match was an ill one. Uh, What's more, all the noblemen who agreed to the match uh, soon turned against Bothwell, both Protestants and Catholics. Um, They all objected to the marriage. Uh, Basically, everyone was questioning why Mary would marry the man who was accused of murdering her second husband. Um, Everything was super fishy. Uh, What's more interesting to us is what Elizabeth had to say about the marriage um, in what I think is probably one of the most candid letters she wrote to her cousin Queen. So she writes, Madam, to be plain with you, our grief hath not been small, that in this marriage so slender consideration hath been had, that as we perceive manifestly no good friend you have in your whole world can like thereof, and if we should otherwise write or say we should abuse you. For how could a worse choice be made for your honour than in such haste to marry such a subject who besides other notorious lacks Public fame has charged with the murder of your late husband. Beside ye, touching of yourself also in some part, though we trust in that half behalf falsely. And with what peril you have married him that hath another lawful wife alive, whereby neither by God's law nor man's yourself can be his lawful wife, nor any children betwixt you legitimate. So, to clarify, what she basically says there is we're really sorry that this terrible thing has happened, i.e. the death of your first, your second husband. Mm. But how on earth could you marry someone who, as well as being just a poor choice in terms of a husband, people are saying murdered. He was the one who orchestrated the assassination attempt. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So how could you do that? And also what's very interesting is that she alludes to the accusation that her third husband uh, raped her. Yeah. So beside you touching of yourself also in some part that we trust in that behalf falsely. So yes. she's saying, really hope it's not true, but this is what's being said. said yeah. Um, and uh, in the last line says something very interesting, which is the fact that uh, Lord Bothwell had a a wife already yeah. and who is alive and had uh, like annulled or divorced or something like that, um, her um, and, and had, had married the Queen. Um, and so she's basically saying, why have you chosen to do this? Um, it's a bad match. Uh, you can't be married in God's sight or in societies and your children won't be legitimate. Yeah. So she's basically questioning her with all of the questions that we would have. Yeah. Um, so Elizabeth goes on in the letter to say that she's sending people up to Scotland to check on her and reaffirms the affection and friendship that she has with her cousin. Um, and I think that Elizabeth thought that this had ruined her cousin. Mm. So I thought, I think the affection that she shows and the, and the, just the honesty that she shows in this letter reveals that she probably thought that she was no longer a threat. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and I think that the earnest kindness is because she can finally be honest with her. Um, in the same way, um, that I would be honest with you if I thought you had made a terrible decision. Um, so many people obviously disagree taking a much more cynical reading of the events. Um, you know, saying, uh, Maybe she's just being kind, um, you know, because she wants to kind of finish her.
1: Yeah. Um, it's probably not the
0: position that I take, but I'm, I'm interested. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's easy to be cynical and to kind of think that things are clear cut, that she either is destroying her in this kind of um, underhanded and polite and subversive kind of way. Um, but I think... I'd like to think that their relationship was probably a bit more complicated and that Elizabeth could have shown real care for Mary, Mm. even though, even if she was a threat, even if she still did perceive that she was a threat. I think, I'd like to think that their relationship was a little bit more complicated than Mm. just a political manoeuvring. I mean, she would have had some significant empathy and obviously Elizabeth has made choices about who she wants to marry and who, or who she doesn't want to marry. Um, and I think she's genuinely wanting to impart that wisdom onto Mary for mm. her good and for her betterment. Um, yeah. I don't know. And yeah, yeah. I think it probably could have been a whole, whole bunch of different things going on. Yeah.
0: So the fallout from the marriage is really quite bad. So Mary is forced to abdicate the Scottish throne and Bothwell is driven into exile and he, dies in like 1578 Mm. um her one-year-old son james becomes uh, king and the earl of moray becomes his regent so it really does seem at this point that it's it's not looking good Mm. for mary um and that's true it's really not looking good (laughs) um but it's certainly not the end of her story Mm. So, um, Mary goes, after her abdication, she goes into uh, house arrest. Mm. Um, and you know, in that time she's embroiled in a number of plots and controversies to depose Elizabeth. But interestingly, she was never formally tra- charged with treason in this time. So rumors were everywhere, but certainty of her involvement was nowhere. She was like a ghost. Mm. Um, so, It's kind of like when someone wearing strong perfume, like, leaves the room and you can smell that they're there but you can't see them. It's kind of like that. Mm. So Elizabeth's advisors wanted Mary to be tried for the death of her second husband Um, and it was here that the casket letters were produced. So these were letters that, allegedly written in the Queen's hand, uh, that's Mary, uh, had ordered um, or supported the assassination of Darnley. And even though Elizabeth could by this stage get rid of Mary, she didn't. So this is really interesting. Um, after this, um, there are a number of plots, um, all of which are tied to uh, Mary um, in some way. So the first one was the Rodolfi plot, which was in 1571, um, and it was hatched and planned by Roberto Rodolfi, which is a great name, mm-hmm. um, but he was an international banker um, and he was able to travel between Brussels, Rome and Madrid uh, to gather support for deposing Elizabeth and replacing her with Mary without um, attracting too much suspicion because he was a travelling man. Um, the Babington plot was, the also, was also the really big one, and that was um, quite a few years later in 1586. And that was, um, likewise, a plan to assassinate and depose Elizabeth and replace her with Mary. Um, and this is the plot, the Babington one. It was the one that led to Mary of Scott's execution, So, um, it was a letter that was sent by Mary, um, basically, which people reckon is, is what, um, instigated. Yeah. Which what instigated the plot. And, um, it was, it was that which kind of sealed her fate. Um, yeah, it was, it was the Babington plot, which proved to be the final nail on the coffin. So it should be pointed out that, Elizabeth was very lenient on Mary and really only agreed to her execution when it was certain that Mary had assented to assassinating Elizabeth. So the plot involved orchestrating a Spanish invasion of England, assassinating the Queen and replacing her with Mary. So, um, the, the letter, the famous letter said, let the great plot commence signed Mary. Um, So in October of that year, Mary was tried for treason and found guilty of having compassed and imagined within this realm of England, divers matters tending to the hurt, death and destruction of the royal person of our sovereign, the Queen. But it wasn't until February of the following year, so so 1587, that Elizabeth signed the death warrant. So they were presented to her in Mm. October and it wasn't until February that she signed them. And on one hand, it seemed that she was worried about how Catholic Spain would react, um, which wasn't without cause because um, two years later, the Spanish Armada was launched. So it was, it was definitely certain that Spain is um, is upset and it's, it's brewing down south. Um, and, you know, so there was that, but also how would Scotland react because mm-hmm. react? it's now ruled by Mary's son, James, Um, James VI, but it is also acknowledged that Elizabeth didn't want to execute her cousin. So as soon as she finally signed the warrant, her advisers moved quickly so that she wasn't allowed to change her mind. Mm. Um, So on February 7, just six days later, when Mary was informed that she was being put to death, she said, I did not think that the Queen, my sister, so we've moved from cousin to sister, my sister would have consented to my death, but seeing her pleasure to do so, death shall be most welcome to me. And Mary's execution was one of the most notorious in history. So um, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's pretty um, – in- it was a pretty interesting execution, uh, both for the theatrics and for um, kind of what went down. So when Mary approached the uh, scaffold, she shed this um, cape to reveal a scarlet – uh, dress, um, which was, you know, would have been very, like she imagine just standing up on the yeah. scaffold and then like, you know, her ladies took off this um, cape and she had this like bright red scarlet dress underneath and she basically was saying, um, you know, on one hand um, she's calling out Elizabeth for being like a perceived whore, but on yeah. the other hand also it's a sign, it's a sign of a martyr. Yeah. Um, so she's making herself out as this kind of Catholic martyr Um, and the other difficulty was, you know, in the execution was that the, um, the, the executor missed and apparently Mm. his, his axe went into the base of her skull rather than chopping her neck off. Sorry if you're squirmish, by the way. Um, but yeah, so it was, it took, it took more than one chop. Um, and lots of, um, you know, wives' tales yeah. came out of it, and yeah, so like yes. apparently her head rolled off, and she said something, and you know, like yeah, a, yeah. a whole bunch of different like scary stories that came out of the um, the situation. But um, it's also it's also kind of rumored that Elizabeth went a bit nuts after the execution, and she yeah. was like tracing around the hall, saying, "I never wanted this. Um, who let this happen?" Kind of thing, because she actually just never really wanted to execute her cousin, yeah. but was kind of forced into a corner when all of her all of her kind of noblemen and advisors and lords were saying it's basically got to the point where your cousin's gonna kill you. Yeah. So what do you, you do? It's you or her, yeah. It's you or her. And and so I think that's 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 what ended up happening.
1: So now let's talk about the depictions of Elizabeth and Mary in pop culture. Mm. And this is the point where I'm going to expose the conspiracy theory that I've heard about Elizabeth. You heard it here, folks. So, the conspiracy goes that when Elizabeth was young, she was sent away to the home of some relatives. Mm -hmm. And while she was there, she died. And so then the relatives were so worried uh, that the king would kill them for uh, killing his daughter that they decided to just find a replacement. And they figured, you know, he doesn't visit all that often. He doesn't really know what she looks like. So they're like, we'll get a replacement. So they go out into the town and they try and find a replacement for Elizabeth. And they can't find one. And so they end up finding a little boy who Ooh. looks like her. Um, and so they find a boy and dress him up as a as a girl. And they send him back uh, when the king comes to collect his daughter. Now, that's kind of the backstory of it. But the, I guess the proof is we've talked a little bit about Elizabeth um, seeming more masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of fits into that. And the fact that she wasn't married, yeah. Also, people say, well, perhaps she was a a, a boy, ma- a boy a mayor, and they made too much so, of a surprise on the exactly, wedding exactly. And they and so she just said, you know, I'm just doing this for my country, especially. Um, and even even in the way that she rules, and um, there's a, there's that quote where she talks about having the
0: yeah in her um in her speech to I think this is what you're talking about yeah. in her speech to her troops at Tilbury on the eve of the Spanish Armada she mm. said um, I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of the king of England too and she she talks about being man like in a yeah. sense yeah. yeah
1: so I think that probably plays into it as well um, and I. The reason that I bring it up and that I think is interesting, firstly, I just enjoy a good conspiracy theory, but also the fact that um, it just poses a really narrow view of uh, what it is to be a woman, I think, because people are like, well, you know, she has traits that are similar to her father or she rules in a particular way therefore, she must Must actually be a man, man, um, which is really disappointing. And I think, you know, there there potentially was a bit of, you know, she hadn't, it's not like she had great, not like she had a lot of queen role models. Hmm. So there might have been um, an aspect where she was thinking, okay, this is how my father does it, so this is how I will do it too. And that may have meant a masculine presentation. But that doesn't mean that she's a man. And so I think it's an interesting conspiracy because I think it's also a common... On what it is to be a woman and a woman in power, and what that must look like, mm. um, and how feminine you must be, feminine you must be in that position. Anyway, so that's my little little tidbit. Look, I <clears throat> there might be a time in my life where I could be persuaded by
0: it, yeah. but it's not this day. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, there's this really great quote. Um, by Dorothy L. Sayers, who is another amazing Christian woman. And uh, she wrote It is extraordinarily entertaining to watch the historians of the past entangling themselves in what they were pleased to call the problem of Queen Elizabeth. They invented the most complicated and astonishing reasons both for her success as a sovereign and for her tortuous matrimonial policy. She was the tool of Burleigh, she was the tool of Leicester, she was the fool of Essex, she was diseased, she was deformed, she was a man in disguise, she was a mystery. She must have had some extraordinary solution. Only recently has it occurred to a few enlightened people that the solution might be quite simple after all. She might be one of the rare people who were born into the right job and put that job first. Mm, mm. So it's just, I guess it, 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 she's picking up there on these kind of conspiracy theories and these different ideas about what, um, you know how Elizabeth could be the way that Elizabeth was. Mm. Um, interestingly, around the same time, um, a political theory came out in England um, called the King's Two Bodies, and it's this is a very obscure reference, so mm. I apologise, but um, it's basically this idea that when you become sovereign, you actually uh, you 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 take on a nature that mm. is, like, divine. Mm. And so um, it's actually modelled on the two natures of Christ. Yeah. And so there's this idea that once you become sovereign, it's like you're kind of, like, you um, you assume almost, you have this, like, assumption where um, you become almost divine mm. and you have a dual nature. Mm. Um, and so I think that for the Queen, for Queen Elizabeth, um, there might have been this... Idea that she almost became a different person, yeah. in an almost divine way mm. when she becomes, um, when she becomes king. Eh, sorry, queen. <laughs> After all that, um, and it's 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 interesting because this um, depiction of her has um, almost it's almost like subsumed her. It's mm-hmm. it's so like the it's called the cult of Elizabeth, mm. where. Um, you know, her different names were, she was called Gloriana, mm. she was called Good Queen Bess, and the time in which she ruled was called the Golden Age of England. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and, you know, so much, she brought so much stability, the Elizabethan settlement happened in terms yeah. of the English Reformation, um, and she really championed, um, really championed this, uh, this mode of of ruling that enabled England to really prosper. Yeah. And uh, it's also not – it's surprising that she is a queen with a military victory, so she defeats the Spanish Armada, which Mm. is, you know, uh, this – it's the biggest naval defeat that uh, Spain has ever experienced. And it's also the biggest, like, you know, as Australians, I think it's the biggest victory of the underdog in this whole story because, um, you know, Spain launches this huge armada of ships and it's – um, it's defeated by a bunch of ruffian English um, sailors who yeah. basically just knew how to sail the English shores better yeah. um, than than Spain did. Yeah. It was such a upset, um, and there's this like, it, 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 like her speech to her troops um, at Tilbury is such a picture of this. Like, you know, she says that she resolves to to live or die amongst you today. Like okay. she she ties herself to the fate of her people in that sense. Um, and you can, you can see how very swiftly this kind of picture of um, this champion, saint, almost god-like queen kind yeah. of emerges from that. And that's really picked up, I think, in um, Elizabeth, which was released in 1998, which is a movie uh, which also had a sequel called Elizabeth the Golden Age. Yeah. Um, and in that, in that movie, these kind of tropes which are part of the cult of Elizabeth are really pulled out. Um, and so, you know, you have, um, this kind of strong, dignified, uh, woman who also has this kind of, you know, battles her demons in terms of her singleness and her loneliness mm-hmm. and, um, her just human side. Yeah. It's kind of, and there's this, this, this picture. And in the, in the second movie, uh, in Elizabeth, the golden age, it centers around the Armada and there's this line, which is probably one of my favorite, like my most favorite lines in cinematic history where... Um, the Spanish delegation are ejected from the English court and the uh the Spaniards make this like dig at Elizabeth um saying that Sir Walter Raleigh sails right up to the royal bedchamber so he makes this makes this dig at her and you know all of the men draw their swords to kind of fight for the queen's honor and um and she says you know like go back to your king Um, and grovel before him and he warns her that something's coming that's Mm. going to um, you know that's going to um, destroy England and she says um, I too sir can command the winds. I have a wind in me that will strip Spain bare, um, and so it's just this like, and the way that like Blanchard does it, I'm just like gonna fawn because <laughs> she is so good. Like she acts it so well, um, and you just like I think the strength and resolve in that line is is to me, I feel like something that you only see a woman do when someone threatens her children.
1: Yeah, and
0: so it's it's very interesting because you almost it's almost like. Um, this lioness kind of emerges to protect her cubs yeah. um, and, and that's what she's talking about um, when when she's talking about her country yeah. and the defensiveness that she gets when someone attacks her country. Um, at the conclusion of the first movie and I'm pretty sure the first movie was originally only supposed to be standalone mm. but because of the, the kind of yeah and it, it ended up getting an, another film but um, the end of the first film is her um, transition into the Virgin Queen. So yeah. she, she ends by, like, all her hair is, shaven, is, is shaved off. She gets this kind of white paint and she dresses up like she's getting married.
1: Yeah. And
0: there's this beautiful scene at the end of the movie accompanied by Mozart's Requiem, um, which has her emerge. Um, and she says, you know, I have become a virgin. Um, and she's wearing this wedding ring and she says, Behold, Lord Burley. I have become. I am married to England, and that's like the last line of the movie. Um, And so, it's so fascinating to have this idea of the Virgin Queen, who is likewise married to England and a mother to England, and it's 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 almost mythological
1: in a way. Yeah.
0: Um. And I think this this has has continued and has captured you know, audiences for a very long time, and I think historians have even bought into this idea. And that's not to say that there's nothing there, um, but it is to say that it's kind of just grown to be this kind of, like, she was good Queen Bess and this is what it was like.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I think in recent times there's been challenges mm. to this idea. I mean, not not only because um, the the, I, the cult of Elizabeth had grown in times of English patriotism, yeah. so
1: everyone's happy about it.
0: Oh, like Elizabeth, the kind of cult thing happens again.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. But, uh, if, you know, if you've watched recently the movie Mary, Queen of Scots, which was released last year, I think what they're trying to do is actually counter some of this this cult. And I think mm. it's always hard when somebody wants to attack Elizabeth to yeah. me because I'm like, <laughs> no, you can't. Um, but I think it's helpful because it actually is just trying to bring us down to,
1: yeah. to
0: reality slightly. Um, but I think in a way that's also trying to prop up Mary a little bit because she's just not yeah. – on the same level Mm. um at least in the kind of education that i've had Mm. um and the exposure to pop culture that i've had she's just not she's just not there um and that's because she i guess when you want to say that history is written by the victors she's she's not a victor um and so this kind of presentation of elizabeth as being not as pretty like Mm. um margot robbie who played elizabeth wore a prosthetic nose and things like that um and the kind of the more human side of Elizabeth actually worked to conversely kind of prop up Mary. Yeah. And so there's almost been like a revival of Mary in a way, Mm -hmm. um, which has has sought to, yeah, paint Mary in a a, a more kind of, I guess, positive light Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth in a more realistic one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So that's just some reflections on how, Uh, society and how pop culture have reflected on these women and their rivalry and the relationship that they've shared and I'm 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 excited to see how that shifts over time and how um, even little things like um, attitudes towards the current monarchy affect how we reflect on monarchies of the past Mm. yeah so do you have any uh, closing reflections on this relationship this rivalry between these two queens
1: I think something that I've been thinking about recently is um, how women can help other women in power. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the narrative generally is that women in power must be rivals. And so, yeah, I, I'd be interested to know, to be a fly on the wall in their mm. relationship and to see how much we've imparted a rivalry on them, um, which, which obviously was apparent. I mean, one ended up killing the other. Um, and how much, yeah, how much support was mm. actually there. Um, and I guess to learn from those mistakes and think about how we can support those women who are own power now. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What about you? I think,
0: um, probably my own journey with, um, my admiration of Elizabeth and then I guess my furthest, my subsequent further study mm-hmm. and investigation into her life and the life of um, Mary has meant that I have been rebuked on seeing people so one dimensionally. Yeah. Like as in, I think both the, their contemporaries and later historians have painted them in a, you know, in a way that's lacked nuance and yeah. understanding and yeah. shades of gray. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, like, uh, Elizabeth is a Protestant and Mary is a Catholic, but it's just like, but what does that mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, you know, because I don't think Elizabeth was a Protestant, like we're, Pro- we're yeah, Protestants, and yeah. um, I don't think that her, you know, what what was at stake with her faith was the same as what's at stake for, for yeah. us. And so there's lots of questions that needed to be asked. And I think, like, for example, um, you know, Elizabeth was just jealous that Mary was better looking. Yeah. It's just such a simplistic way to yeah. say it. Um, and, of course, sometimes human beings are literally that, basic yeah of course um but oftentimes they're not yeah. and and so um i think just to be just that morning that i hear echo through history here which is um to to be careful not to um to dehumanize people um out of our desire to understand them yeah um which is to make them uh, less complicated so that we can digest them and and actually just sometimes we need to sit with the complexity and with the missing pieces of information we might not ever really know um you know were they actually really good friends yeah um i think we can take our guesses from the from the the sources that we have but we might not ever really know and i think that the um the mystery of it can seem unsatisfactory but it can also be what's so intriguing about this story Absolutely. So that's it for this episode of What She Said. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook and visit us at podcastwhatshesaid.com. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do so at podcastwhatshesaid at gmail.com.
1: We hope that by listening to this episode and to our podcast, you are encouraged by her empathetic towards her and unaware.